All right, uh, if you want to flip in your Bibles to Luke 16. All right, um, if y'all don't know who I am, I'm Chris Duck. Um, I'm one of the interns here. Um, I moved here about like six or eight months ago now or something like that. Been a minute. But one thing I want to say before I even get into anything else is, man, just thank y'all so much for being so welcoming to me. Like, y'all have been an absolute blessing of a community to me. Um, I just can't thank y'all enough for all the things y'all have done for me and for my friends even. Y'all are awesome, and I love being here with all of y'all. Um, but with that being said, the, tonight's parable of the, um, the rich man and Lazarus, and it talks a lot about hell. But there is not a more tempting false doctrine to believe than, like, negating hell. Like, to believe that it's not a thing. And the reason why that comes is, first and foremost, because people try to diminish the effects of sin and the seriousness of it. Um, You don't have to look hard to find people that will be like, oh, hell's just for, like, the really bad people, like Hitler and Mussolini and all those kinds of people. You don't have to look far at all to find those. And they say that, like, a loving God could not send people to hell. They say that no one deserves to be punished for eternity, that it's unjust but we know that's wrong. At a church like this that preaches faithfully, y'all, y'all know that's wrong and wrong-headed. And a God who doesn't punish evil is not loving or just. He would be cowardice and selfish, but the God of Scripture is not that way. He is the just and the justifier. He is the one who sent his own son to suffer our necessary punishment. And he is the one that will judge all evil. And if people don't outright reject it, they'll say they believe it and then not talk about it ever. Like, they'll... They'll preach that sin's a real thing or that hell's a real place, but they won't actually talk about, like, man, if you are just prideful, it'll send you there. If you just don't trust the Lord and lead an okay life where you're not killing anybody or anything, you will still be sent to hell. They don't talk about it. They will just completely push it off because they think it makes Christianity less appealing. But that doesn't make it less appealing. That takes away, the, like, the very part that makes the gospel good news is that we're being saved from something. We are being saved from our sin and God's wrath. If you take that away, the good news doesn't make much of a difference in your life. Um, If you were here, I think it was on this past Sunday when Pastor Brian was talking about people who say, like, Jesus didn't die as a substitute for us. He just died to show us that he loved us. (laughs) And the analogy that he used was, like, if I just jump in a train, if I just tell you I love you and then jump in front of a train, I haven't proved I love you. I just proved I'm an idiot. But if I shove you out of the way and then take the train for you, that's how I show you I love you. It's by substitutionary sacrifice. So if you take away the doctrine of hell, the gospel really doesn't mean much. Um, And then, as Kevin says, you can't appreciate the fireworks without the nice guy. But in our passage today, we see the shocking reality of how horrible and terrifying hell is. And how Jesus, like, never shied away from it. And we shouldn't either. He described hell a lot more often than people think. All right, but it's, in, it's Luke 16, 19 through 31, so I'm going to read it for us. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, 
have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And, and Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And, said, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also should come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All right, let us pray. Father of all mercy, we thank you for bringing us together tonight. We thank you for all you've done for us, bringing your son. We thank you for allowing this incredible church to have such a vibrant ministry. In the passage we read tonight, it might be scary, it might be difficult, but it is your perfect word. The reason why you gave it to us is because we need it. We need to know and accept this truth. So Lord, I ask that you, your Holy Spirit, illuminate your scriptures and soften our hearts and lead us to obedience. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, before we get into the meat of the text, there's a few things I want to address. Um, first is just how it fits into the surrounding context. So in the two previous parables in 15 and 16, you see the parable of the prodigal son who wished his father dead just to have his money. And then his brother who despised him for his brother even receiving mercy. And then in chapter 16, we find the parable of the dishonest ma- ma- manager who shows us how sinful use of material possessions, which leads to us a parable now. But, ironically, there's a lot of people who don't think it's a parable because it names Lazarus, which is odd for parables. I think this is the only chant, the only time throughout Scripture that a parable is given an actual name in the text. But, I think it's a parable, and the first reason I think that is a textual reason. So Luke sets up a, like, pattern for parables. And in, and in verse 19 it says, There was a rich man. And then back in 16.1, for the parable of the dishonest messenger, he says, there was a rich man. And then you flip back to Luke 15.11, and he says, and there was a man who had two sons. So Luke is setting up a thing that this is a parable. This is not reality of what actually happened. He is trying to push a point. This is not a truth, like an actual story that happened. And second is a theological one. People in hell cannot communicate with people in heaven. The text said that there was a great chasm fixed and that no one can cross it. And if it's that big, you're not going to be able to yell across the dead gum thing. Okay? And then, not only that, could you imagine being in heaven and just hearing the agony of people in hell? That'd be torture to have to sit there for all eternity hearing them scream and, like, gnash their teeth. That'd be terrifying. And that's not what, he- that's not what heaven is going to be like. Even for our own sake, it wouldn't be that way. But... Even if you don't, even if you think it's a true story, it doesn't really matter because the same lessons still ring true. Um, and then the third thing I want to address is the use of Hades and Abraham's side. Or if you have another translation, it calls it bosom. Um, so for the sake of brevity, just understand Hades is hell and Abraham's side or bosom is heaven. Um, if you want to hear more on that, Kevin preached the Apostles' Creed, talked about descending into hell, Sheol, all that kind of stuff. You can ask him about that on Theology Thursday. Put a pin in that one for you. Um, And it's also important 
because we don't want to press details and parables too far. Because when you press them too far, you're pushing them beyond what they're meant to communicate. But we'd like, we need to take them literally for what they're trying to say, but we don't want to push things too far. Um, now, in this text, I think there's three things that Christ is trying to communicate in three stages that he's trying to get at. The first one is this life, and we find that in verses 19 through 22. The second one is the afterlife in verses 23 through 28. And then three is the scripture's power to give life in verses 29 through 31. And we'll begin with this life in verses 19 through 22. Jesus tells us of this like lavishly rich man who dresses, eats, and acts like a king every day of his life. So much so that he wears purple every day for some reason. And it's an ostentatious just display of his wealth for no reason. It was expensive, and you were just wasting money. That'd be like buying like brand new boots every day to wear. It would make no sense. You'd just be wasting your money. And then he also feasted every day, feasted sumptuously every day. This is like having a Thanksgiving meal for yourself every day. So much so that the parable even says that, he, that Lazarus, the poor man, desired to be fed with just what fell from the table. So, I mean, he was living in just ridiculous wealth. But then we meet the next figure, which is Lazarus, the poor man. And verse 20 says, At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores. And before we even get into who Lazarus is, this is a constant theme in this parable, is that of separation that cannot be breached. So here we see the poor man cannot like, experience the goodness of this man's riches. But then later in the parable, we see the rich man cannot experience the goodness of heaven that the poor man is. So, and then the verb laid there, that's a passive one. So what he's trying to communicate there is this poor man Lazarus was literally like tossed at this man's gate, just like laid him down, like he could not walk. That is likely why he had so many sores on his body. They were probably bed sores, if you know what that is. It's because he could not move. So his body would just get sores on it because there's so many pressure points. He would just be laying there. But his worries didn't even stop there. Not only was he starving and lame and sleeping outside all day, the dogs would come up and try to lick his sores. And this was not our little cute dogs we have at home, as much as I love them. These are like wild dogs that were probably just waiting for him to die so they could eat him. Like, they weren't licking his sores trying to make him feel better. Okay? Or as Brother Alamite says, you could treat these as wolves. Okay? Um, and so, but the rich man paid him no attention. And harken back, last week he didn't even have the courage to poke him with a stick. <laughs> um... He had, he had all of the ability to help, but none of the heart to care. He had all of these riches, all of these things that he could have done. But he just walked by him at his gate every day and just let him rest there. Just let him stay there. Even though he saw he was starving, even though he had all these things that could help this poor man. He just continuously walked past him. But as everything in this life comes to on earth, they both died. Like, no matter how rich you might be, no matter how good your family might be, death comes to everyone, every single one of us. It comes to children, it comes to old people, it comes to college students. And we, like, people in this room have experienced the death of a loved one. And unfortunately, in a room this big, like, people we know here might die in relatively, like, crazy times. Like, COVID happened, people started dying, we're like, whoa. Or, like, all this other stuff, like, we just have to be aware but one thing that we see here is like how these riches corrupted this man. Like 
they just made him completely hard-hearted towards anyone else. Because in this life, we can see that worldly riches and worldly riches and anything not surrendered at the feet of Jesus might produce a lavish and comfortable lifestyle, but they will produce a calloused heart, a blind eye, and a damned soul. Like, if riches have you, be careful. So, and in First Timothy 6.10, it says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If you let these things take hold of your heart and you let them become the God of your life, then you will go where they go. And you will follow them where they lead you. And that is broad, is the path of destruction. And it's just sad to see that the poor man was just cared. And then, but when they both died, they came. And this is the great reversal of the whole thing. Is it's like this rich man who treated this poor man so horribly. And now after death, it's flipped completely. In verses 23 through 28, which is my second point, the afterlife. In this verse, we see our upside down world made right. Now, for us, it might seem upside down in heaven. It's understandable. But make no mistake, the world we live in right now is the upside down one, not the one to come. Like the rich, the powerful, the prideful will be the ones suffering for eternity. And the humble and the ones who have trusted in Christ and laid their lives down before the Lord will be the ones that will be put in glory. So we see this rich man in verse 23. He actually got a burial. Lazarus is not even mentioned of having a burial. Like, it's like he was so disregarded by community. Honestly, the dogs could have taken him away. He doesn't even mention it. But in verse 24, he saw that Abraham and, and Lazarus, and so he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Notice how the first thing he asked for is not a second chance. He doesn't want to worship the Lord. He doesn't want to have anything to do with him. He just wants his pain to stop. Because people in hell don't just start repenting. That's one of the reasons, apart from God just being infinitely holy, that hell lasts forever. You don't stop sinning when you go there. You get hardened in it. You stay in it. And so, but then we see the poor man, Lazarus, sitting next to the patriarch of Israel and Abraham. Like, next to the guy who, like, God started it all with was this poor man who couldn't even walk. That no one thought about was sitting in the place of honor. And so, but he asked for just a dip of water to come touch on his tongue. Touch on his tongue. And that just is trying to communicate how, like, desperate this man was for water. Like, if you're just a little tired and a little thirsty, you're like, yeah, you know, if you're only going to give me this much, I really don't want it. Like, it's not a big deal. But this man was so desperate for water in his anguish that he thought even a drop would make a difference. Like, that's how much pain this guy was in. And then Abraham, sa- Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus and men are bad. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Notice how he referred to Abraham as father, and he referred to him as child. Like, this man's a Jew. This man was part of God's covenant people in the Old Testament. But he, he tried to get his bloodline as a reason to get mercy, and it didn't work. Just as our parents' faith or our pastor's faith will not save us, we cannot be saved by anything but our faith in Christ alone. Everything else will fail you. Everything. And then, 
another thing that this is communicating is that like these places are fixed and permanent. There is no second chances after you die. Like for, for believers, absent from the body, present with the Lord for all eternity. That's why it's called eternal life. Is when you're given eternal life, you will live in that for the rest of eternity. And this is a constant thing in when describing the afterlife. In Matthew 25, 46, it says, These will go away into the everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those two terms, everlasting and eternal, are the same word in Greek. Like, just as eternal as heaven is, so eternal will hell be. And so he's communicating this to Sadducees to a certain degree too, because Sadducees didn't, like, they believed that the soul was not completely immortal. He's communicating to them, no, like, whether for good or bad, you will live forever. That's either in hell or in heaven. Those are the two places you go. There is no in-between. And there's another thing, too, that, like, there was no in-between. Like, when, when the rich man died, he went to hell. When, the, when, the, um, when Lazarus died, he went to heaven. There was no in-between. There was no purgatory. Like, there is no in-between. As soon as it happens, you go. There is no second chances. And this is hard for us to fathom sometimes, that hell is that real. But hell is just as real as heaven. And as glorious and as holy as heaven will be, so also hell will be torturous and wretched. Like, that is terrifying. And if you're, like, sitting in your seat right now, like, whoa, that's a hard pill to swallow. It should be. That shouldn't make any of us comfortable. But it's still a truth that we need to hold on to. Like, the reason why he put it in here is because we needed to understand it. Like, we have to warn people of the judgment coming before the God of the universe. And if we don't, man, like, man, like, he says if you don't, like, love people, then, like, truth might not even be in you, right? And so, and then strange events happen in verses 27 and 28. He says, Then I beg you, Father, send to him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they should come into this place of torment. And you're like, is he remorseful? What is this? What is happening here? This doesn't make any sense. And on the surface, it might seem that way, but it's the complete opposite because he's not, he's not trying to warn his brothers. He's saying, God, if you would have sent something else, then I would have repented too. Like if you would have done something different, if you would have been better at your job, I would have repented. I would have known different. No. Like, God has this perfect plan. His word is sufficient. Creation is even sufficient to damn, just not to save. He had all that he needed. He's claiming that God was unfair to him. And that's just insane to even think about. But this argument is not new for us. We hear like almost every atheistic like opponent to Christian apologetics. Well, at one point, Sarah, another wolf, man, God's real. Why can't he just like ride it in the sky or ride it on the moon? Everyone is always wishing for their own personal revelation, but we have one that is done. We have one that is sufficient. We don't need any more. But then Abraham confronts this wrong thinking. In, in, in my third point, Scripture's power to give life in verses 29 through 31. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham tells them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, which is just another way of saying the entire scriptures, 
then they will not listen to a man risen from the dead. And at face value, that seems utterly insane. Like, if you saw, saw a dude walking, like, alive who was dead two days earlier, you'd be like, I want to hear what that dude has to say. He probably has some things I ought to know. <laughs> like, that just makes sense. But, and not only that, Lazarus would not only be a walking, like, a dead man walking, like, he was crippled before. So, like, two miracles. Like, he was first crippled, and now he's walking, but not, now he's, like, dead and now alive. But the reason why a lot of us think that, and me included, is because we have an extremely weak idea of how powerful Scripture is. It's because we don't trust it. And that's why so many times when we start trying to, like, share the gospel with people, man, we don't start with it. Because we're like, man, they don't believe it, so why should I care? Man, police don't have to make that argument. Like, when a policeman comes up and arrests somebody for murder, he doesn't have to explain to them the authority he came with. He goes and tells it. Just like in Matthew 28, because of the authority given to me, go. Like, this is the thing that we have, like, we stand on the foundation of Scripture. And, like, I understand it, and that's what I'm not saying that we don't need other things. And this is one of the most clearest statements of Scripture sufficiency in the entire Bible. Like, if they don't listen to them, they will not listen to miracles. And guys, I don't know about y'all, I can't do miracles. So, like, I got one trick pony here. We got the Bible. And, man, am I glad we have that. But um, oftentimes we feel like we need to defend Scripture for people who don't even believe it. But that's crazy. Scripture does not need to argue its own merits. It is from God himself. It is the top of the food chain. Like, you can't get higher. And so Charles Spurgeon, once when he was talking about defending the Bible, he said, I'd sooner defend a lion. You don't defend the Bible, you open its cage and you let it roar. Like, now, is apologetics useful? Yes. Absolutely. I was an apologetics major for my first few years of college. I love the stuff. You can ask Grant. I would spend hours just watching videos. I was a nerd. Like, so many times. Like, it's a great thing to do. Like, is it necessary? Absolutely. But it all should be in support of proclamating Scripture, not anything else. You should not, like, find your argument and then use Scripture as your last point. No. Base your opinions and your things off of Scripture and then use everything else in its support. Like, that is our main foundation. So, I'm not saying we don't need these other things. But, like, our best tool, if we really want to see people change, and we really want to see people come to the Lord, is the living Word of God. But that's not all Christ was trying to tell us. He was showing us that, like, if they don't believe me now, if they don't believe the Scriptures now, when I raise it, it won't change anything. And to us, again, that sounds crazy. But <laughs> that happened. In Matthew 28, 13, like after he was raised, the chief priests and the elders were told by the guards, oh my gosh, he's not there. Like, he's gone. Like, he's not in the tomb anymore. They're like, what do we do? They bribed them to lie. Like, if, if something was supposed to communicate, hey, what I'm saying is true, him prophesying himself rising from the dead and then doing it ought to convince you. But they didn't because they still didn't believe the scriptures. Like, that is the foundation. So their problem, the problem was not the evidence. 
it's their heart. And ours is the same way. And that's the same way he's saying here. Like, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they would not listen to someone risen from the dead. And if you're sitting here and you're like, well, crap, I'm doing a lot of that right now. Like, I always just try and argue people into the kingdom. Man, I've been there and I've done that as a road that will wear you out. Because there's always a new argument. There's always something else changing, man. But like, Scripture never does. Same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, like, man, we have nowhere else to go. We, we, we are like Peter in John 6. When other people leave, Lord, where else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. <laughs> and if you're sitting here today and you haven't, like, repented of your sins and trusted him and you're thinking about hell right now and it terrifies you, it should. That is one of the points of it. And that is honestly kind of a grace. Because, man, if we weren't scared of hell, like, we probably wouldn't love God as much either. It wouldn't mean as much. But if you're sitting there and you haven't, like, take heed of the guy who was there, the rich man. Repent and turn to the Lord. Die to yourself and live in Christ. But if you've already done that, man, I, I just encourage you with Proverbs 3, trust not in your own understanding. Trust that God's word is sufficient and he is sufficient to change people and to change you into everything that he wishes you to be. So, like, when we see this parable, it might be a hard thing for us to swallow about how horrible this life can be, about how terrifying hell is. And God's word is our foundation. It is everything we stand on. And then one last thing with Lazarus. Like, a lot of people question, they're like, okay, if it's a parable, then why in the world did they give him a name? It is 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about Lazarus. And the rich man, he doesn't even get a name. But Lazarus' name is written in the book of life. His name will last. Like, and we see this throughout Scripture. And if Brian preaches on it on Sunday nights. He's like, some of the only reasons why people are remembered in Scripture is because they were in the line of Jesus. Only way our lives are made special if we're in the line of Jesus. It's the only way. So we have to trust his word and trust him in everything that we do. So I'm going to pray us out. Father, you have been so kind to us to reveal yourself to us through your word, through creation, through everything that you have done. You are just so awesome. So Lord, we thank you for the reality of heaven. And Lord, we thank you for the conviction you give us of hell and the terror it gives us, Lord, that we may cast our fears upon you, that you will redeem our hearts and change us, Lord, that your word is sufficient of everything that we do. So I pray that it encourages us, that it challenges us to share the gospel more faithfully, to share the reality of hell more faithfully, so that people can see how good the good news is, Lord. I thank you, and it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.